From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. The female jogger was severely beaten and raped. Every black male who was in the park last night is a suspect. I need all of them. The Netflix series When They See Us is up for 16 Emmys. It's about the five black boys wrongly convicted in the Central Park jogger case. But the show's biggest impact may be the boost it's given attorneys who work on wrongful convictions. An update from the Innocence Project in Colorado. Then, protests in Hong Kong over China's tightening grip. This hits home for one Colorado man. Later, what El Chapo's life will be like at the Alcatraz of the Rockies. And a film festival spotlights African-American filmmakers in Colorado and gives them a shot at the Oscars. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. If someone's in prison for a crime they didn't commit, what does it take to get them out? It might just take a TV show. Where did you see the lady? One, one lady. The female jogger was severely beaten and raped. Every black male who was in the park last night is a suspect. I need all of them. What's going on with my son? Your son was involved in rape in Central Park. Uh, no, no, it's, no, wait a minute. No wait a second, wait a second. They saw you rape the lady. I didn't see a lady or hit anyone. I didn't see any lady. Kevin. I didn't see any lady. I want to see my son right now, right now. This is from When They See Us on Netflix. It's up for 16 Emmys. It's the story of the Central Park jogger case. Five black children convicted of rape who were eventually exonerated. And here's the thing. The show has brought new energy and new money to a campaign in Colorado focused on overturning wrongful convictions. Anne-Marie Moyes directs the Corey Wise Innocence Project at CU Boulder, and welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. So more on the connection to the TV series a bit later, what this has meant. But you have spent your career doing this kind of work. Tell us briefly about the first time you had a hand in helping someone who was convicted for a crime they didn't commit. Well, um, before I even went to law school, I met a man who had been wrongly convicted, and I met him in the course of some activist work I was doing around prison reform, and I came to believe he was innocent. And it was really hearing his story and coming to a deeper understanding about how broken our criminal justice system is that inspired me to go to law school. Um, Did you get to follow through on this case? Yes. So he had a team of lawyers who took his case pro bono. But at some point after I graduated from law school, I did a really comprehensive investigation of his case. And it took me three years to do it. And in the course of that investigation, I was able to uncover evidence that um, he, he was not the right person. And it was that evidence that ultimately freed him. Without going into too many details... Uh, Was that case indicative to you of deeper problems? Absolutely. You know, you see uh, patterns in cases of wrongful conviction, and there are people who look at exonerations and study these patterns. And his case had a a lot of the markers of a wrongful conviction. There was mistaken eyewitness identification. There was abusive use of what we would call incentivized witnesses, meaning people who got a huge benefit in exchange for testifying against the person. There was prosecutorial misconduct. The police and prosecutors buried a 
mother load of exculpatory evidence rather than disclosing it at the time of trial. So his case really fit the bill of what a wrongful conviction often looks like. So this is why you got into law and it wound up being something of a success for you and for him as well. Yes. I don't imagine that walking free after being wrongly convicted means that a person's life immediately returns to normal. What have you seen uh, are the lasting effects on people who have served, you know, long sentences and then are released? So the average amount of time that somebody spends in prison after being wrongfully convicted before exoneration is 11 years. And I mean, that's just the people who get exonerated. But there are certainly a number of people who spend decades in prison before they're exonerated. So when you take somebody who has been wrongly imprisoned for 20 years, 30 years, they come out and you know, life is not the same as when they went in. You know, things have moved on. Technology is different. Sometimes their family relationships are broken. And to just expect them to go back and pick up their lives where they left off is obviously not realistic. Do they tend to succeed? And I know that that's a a rather broad question, but... Yeah, I think it's a really mixed thing. People struggle with post-traumatic stress disorder. You know, it really just depends on the person. The innocence organizations collectively have recognized that we can't just get somebody out, that we need to think about what happens to them afterwards. So bigger innocence organizations that have bigger budgets, they have social workers that work for them and help people in the transition. Because, you know, it is an incredibly difficult transition. Yeah, that's fascinating. I can imagine the team of attorneys celebrating at the moment that someone walks free. But that really is the beginning of the story. Absolutely. There's a high-profile case of a wrongful conviction in Colorado recently, of course, Clarence Moses Eel. In 1987, he was convicted of raping and beating a neighbor and sentenced to 48 years in prison. Uh, He was released, and under the Colorado Exoneration Act, he's getting about $2 million from the state. Uh, Let's get some more perspective on wrongful convictions. Do we have a sense of how often they happen? It seems like a difficult thing to measure. It is a difficult thing to measure, and there are people that have tried. And, you know, some people have estimated an error rate of in the range of 3 to 5%, which when you really add up the numbers and what that means, I mean, that's that's a tremendous number of people. And when you th- innocence organizations, I mean, we're, they're sort of a barometer of that as well, because we are overwhelmed with applications from people wanting our help. And every innocence organization ends up having to pick just a small number of those applications where they feel like they have the time to do something. I, I'm fascinated by how you decide what cases to take on. I imagine more people claim that they were wrongfully convicted than actually were. Do you think that's true? I think that's true, but I also think it's sort of a dangerous myth to too quickly write off when somebody claims innocent because innocence because there are many people in prison who admit guilt, who entered pleas, you know, who have always conceded their guilt even in horrible crimes. It's not um, that everyone in prison says exactly, they're innocent. Exactly. Exactly. Uh-huh. Yes. Um, But in terms of innocence organizations and how we screen cases, I mean, there are two questions that we try to answer. One, do we think there's a credible claim of innocence? And then two, is it a case where we feel like we could possibly do something about it? It's very difficult to overturn a wrongful conviction. I mean, basically, 
you know, to simplify it, you have to come up with something new, some new evidence, and it has to be big. In, be, otherwise, you're not going to overcome what are tremendous procedural barriers to get back in court and have a court meaningfully look at the evidence you're bringing forward. That is to say, you think there are credible cases that simply can't be pursued reasonably because there doesn't exist those sorts of elements. Exactly. That must be a painful realization. It absolutely is. Um, I was actually recently visiting um, a man in prison who's been there for over a decade, and he took a plea in his case because he was afraid that he was going to get life without the possibility of parole, and he knew the kind of case, case the state was going to put on against him, and even though he always maintained his innocence, he entered a plea. So that's an example of a case where because he entered a plea, it makes it much more difficult for an innocence organization mm. to come in and do something about it. But it's not uncommon for innocent people to enter pleas in their best interest. Okay, your project, the Innocence Project in Colorado, is named for Corey Wise, who was one of the five teenagers convicted in that assault on a jogger in New York City Central Park in 89. All five were later exonerated. And as we said in our introduction, their story is told in this Netflix show, When They See Us. My understanding is that this has resulted in more support, more awareness, perhaps more money for Innocence Projects? Yeah, the response to the series has been absolutely amazing. So on our Facebook page, we started out with a pretty small following, and now we have 25,000 people who have liked our Facebook page just since the series came out. Um, we've had an influx of unsolicited donations. We've had um, a significant uptick in inquiries, people wanting help. So people have seen the series. They see Corey Wise Innocence Project at the end. And we're getting phone calls, emails. We've been pretty overwhelmed just responding to that. Is this going to result in more cases uh, being taken on? I hope so. Um, one of our goals is that we want to try to hire a staff attorney. Right now, I'm the only staff member with the project, and that just really limits the amount of work that we can do. So what we're hoping to do is add another attorney position with you know, the increase in funding we've gotten through the series, but we need additional funding sources to make that happen. Thanks for helping us understand this. We appreciate it. You're welcome. Anne-Marie Moyes is the program director of the Corey Wise Innocence Project at CU Boulder, indeed named for one of the Central Park Five. And the Netflix show about that case, When They See Us, has given the project a noticeable boost. Chasing after our Life in Hong Kong is changing fast, so fast that a Colorado man says he barely recognizes it there, despite having lived in Hong Kong for nearly 20 years. His main concern, which is shared by many on the island, is that China is taking away Hong Kong's independence and violating international law. There have been massive protests. So that was in June, and the sound comes from Craig Briggs, professor at Regis University in Denver. He recently returned from Hong Kong, again, an island he knows well. Craig, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. Good morning. You have a deep connection to this place. You transferred there for work in 1993, met your wife there, raised a family, built a career. Uh, you have permanent residency there, but remain a U.S. citizen. 
Of course, Hong Kong was transferred from the British to Chinese rule in 97, but with the understanding that it would maintain some autonomy. Why don't we start with a picture of what what life was like prior to the current tensions? Well, yeah, I, I'm very connected to Hong Kong, as you mentioned. Emotionally, it's been a it's a big part of my life and remains so. But the history of Hong Kong, it was a British colony for a long time, and it became a British colony after the Opium Wars, which essentially Britain, which was the strongest global power at that time and a massive uh, dominant trader in world trade with the East India Company, wanted to get Chinese silk and tea and porcelain and all these things, but they didn't have anything the Chinese wanted, so they forced the Chinese to trade for opium. And when the population got addicted to opium and the Chinese rulers at that time, which was the Qing dynasty, said, we don't want this anymore, we don't want you to come, the British fought a war. And that ceded Hong Kong, the island you mentioned, to the British for 99 years. And what was your life like for the bulk of that time? Oh, it was fantastic. Uh, It was so exotic in some ways. Hong Kong is really the most international city in Asia. Uh, The tradition, you know, one street has traditional Chinese sort of feeling to it. The next one is all glass and marble and steel and very, very modern. It was fantastic for my personal life. As you said, I met my wife there. We had our family there. But for business, it was fantastic. It was the most laissez-faire market you could possibly be in. There was so much opportunity to trade in the region. It was so central. The infrastructure was great. It was, you had the rule of law. Everything worked. It was fantastic. But it it wasn't quite Britain. It wasn't quite China. It was something unto itself. It really was kind of in between. It had all these vestiges of of the of, of Great Britain in terms of the money and the stamps and the flag flying over Hong Kong, et cetera. English was widely spoken. But by the time I arrived there, um, the, the middle class had emerged for years and Chinese were getting rich. It wasn't that the British were holding them down anymore. They knew that the territory was going to cede to Hong Kong and they needed to put together an agreement with China, which they did. But it was kind of this hybrid that you don't see anywhere else in Asia or in the world, probably. That agreement you mentioned is really at the heart of some of the tensions right now. It How is indeed. How much autonomy Hong Kong can re- retain under Chinese rule. You mainly live in Colorado now, but you return to Hong Kong five or six times a year. That's right. And you happened to be there when millions of people took to the streets earlier That's this right. month. Two million protest. people. Keep in mind, the population of Hong Kong is 7.5 million people. So that basically means one out of every four people were in the streets. That's some turnout. It was astonishing. It was amazing. It's hard to describe. I was part of it, and I was glad to be part of it. It's hard to describe, but I'm going to ask you to try. Okay. A lot of the protests that perhaps people have read about, if they're familiar with this situation, which has been going on for many years now since the handover, especially since 2014, was something called the Yellow Umbrella Movement, which people may also know about. This was different. This wasn't students in the street. This was every walk of life. I saw children. I saw the elderly. I saw professionals. I saw students. I saw teenagers. I saw domestic workers. I saw Western people, foreigners like myself. Every walk of life was in the street, peacefully walking, chanting, protesting. This is not an elitist protest. Absolutely not. It covers all walks of life in Hong Kong. Yes, and that made it very different than some of the protests before. Uh, These protests and rallies over the past few weeks are specifically in response to an extradition bill. That's right. It would allow suspected criminals in Hong Kong to be transferred to courts in mainland China. Why is that so scary to the people of Hong Kong? Help us understand that. 
Well, it is a bit complicated, but I would point to something that happened about three years ago. Five Chinese booksellers who are writing sort of racy books about China because Hong Kong has a free media. There is freedom of speech in Hong Kong and has been for a very long time. These booksellers vanished. There was no record of them leaving the territory, leaving Hong Kong. I shouldn't call it a territory anymore, leaving the special administrative region. There is immigration between Hong Kong and China. If you go into China, there is a record through immigration. Basically, the secret police of China abducted these booksellers and took them into China. And nobody knew where they were for several, several weeks. And then suddenly they appeared on national TV confessing to crimes that they had committed, crimes that many people suspected didn't exist. And so the light that is shined upon the justice system in Hong Kong dims considerably once you reach mainland China. That's absolutely true. And you mentioned the basic law before. The basic law is an agreement between Great Britain and Hong Kong that says that Hong Kong will continue to have its autonomy for 50 years from 1997 to 2047. It will be part of China, but it will operate as one country with two systems. So China has its one-party authoritarian system, and Hong Kong would continue to have its own independent judiciary, legislative, and executive branches. And that's what's being violated. And of course, the territorial integrity autonomy is, is violated when people are abducted out of, the, out, of, out, of the, out of the city. What are some of the other concerns about China's tightening grip? Well, it's important for your listeners to understand that Hong Kong never was a democracy. They never elected their leaders before. There was a governor of Hong Kong appointed by Great Britain, uh, appointed by the parliament. Interesting. But they had freedom. They had freedom of expression, freedom of assembly, all the freedoms that we enjoy here. And this is what is changing. So people are very worried. If you're students, you're saying, you know, I want to enjoy these freedoms as I, as I grow up. But even if you're a businessman, you say, you know, I travel into China on business. If for some reason China arbitrarily says, we think you've committed a crime. We don't like what you've been saying. We don't like what you've been doing, what have you. They can arrest you, put you on trial. And I would like to point out that 99% of people on trial in China are convicted. The official U.S. State Department position on Hong Kong is that it, quote, supports Hong Kong's autonomy under the one country, two systems framework that you've described. Uh, President Trump met with China's president last month and reportedly said he'd back off criticism of China's approach to Hong Kong. Uh, in order to revive U.S.-China trade talks. Uh, what is your long-term hope for Hong Kong, just briefly? Well, Hong Kong is not going to become a, a democracy. That's just not going to happen. That wasn't what was in the basic law. I think my hope for Hong Kong is that for the remainder of this period... 2047, 20, right? Yeah, that's right, yeah. 28 years from now, that during this 28-year period that Hong Kong can operate as the law specified as one country but two systems, and that the people of Hong Kong can continue to enjoy the freedoms that they they enjoyed under the British and now under under the Chinese for a short period of time, which is now only, only now changing, but in advance of this 2047 date. Thank you for being with us, Craig. We appreciate it. My pleasure. Craig Briggs is a professor of marketing at Regis University in Denver. He returned from Hong Kong last month after one of the largest protests yet over China's tightening grip. One of the deadliest wildfires in U.S. history claimed the lives of 14 firefighters on Storm King Mountain near Glenwood Springs. It happened 25 years ago this month. Since then, family and friends have found comfort connecting with one another in the very place where their loved ones died. CPR's Western Slope reporter Stina Sieg was there for a recent gathering. 
The memorial trail up Storm King Mountain is rough and rocky, mountain goats deep. It's a tough hike and a sacred one. I'm Carol Roth, and I'm 83, and I was up here to see where my youngest son got killed. His name was Roger Roth. He was 30, and he was special, she says, a young man who loved nature and his crew. Carol sitting on the side of the path, her 86-year-old husband Walter beside her, a plunging drop-off in front of them. They've climbed this before, maybe half a dozen times, and traveled all the way from Michigan to do it again. We remember, and if we're here and talking with the people, and they see people coming and going, they will probably also remember Remember how the South Canyon fire unfolded, how it started small, sparked by lightning, and smoldered for a few days before firefighters hiked up this very route to attack it. The following day brought more crews, as well as a dry cold front that whipped the wind and sent the fire racing up the mountainside. A group of 12 smoke jumpers and hot shots couldn't outrun it. Neither could two Helitech firefighters fleeing nearby. Carol says a lot of young people probably don't even know this fire ever happened. So it's a comfort on the anniversary to be around families who all experienced the same loss. I was really happy to see how many were at the dinner last night because all of us are getting older. Down at the trailhead, Ralph and Jeannie Holtby, both in their 70s, are sitting in the shade. Jeannie broke her foot, so they couldn't hike this year, but they still knew they had to come flying in from Oregon to honor their daughter, Bonnie, the youngest victim. She was only 21 when she died, and Jeannie says she was a real team player. The crew was a 20-man team, and they were so close. They were like brothers and sisters. They were so connected. Now the Holtbys feel a connection to the families here today and to this place so far from their home. Ralph describes himself as not being prone to big outward shows of emotion over his daughter's death. But yesterday, while walking around one of the memorials to the firefighters, he heard himself start talking. To myself, I said, I'm sorry, Bonnie. I wish it could have been different. You did what you could. He and his wife take some solace in the fact that what happened to Bonnie has been informing wildland firefighting ever since. Former hotshot Alex Robertson was on the mountain the day of the deaths and now works in fire management in Oregon. He says after South Canyon, firefighting agencies took a hard look at how they trained their crews. Are we providing them the right tools to go lead, make decisions, and be responsible for people's, people's kids? Robertson himself trains people in this spot every year. And so often, somebody asks him how it feels to return. They assume that it would be hard to be up there. Um, It's one of my favorite places to be. He always looks forward to trekking up that narrow trail and to seeing those 14 small stone crosses. Because I'm going to be with my brothers and sisters. A few plaques at the trailhead display their biographies in four words that still echo across the wildland firefighting community. We will never forget. In Glenwood Springs, I'm Stina Sieg, CPR News. And Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour with what life will be like for El Chapo at the Alcatraz of the Rockies. I'm Ryan Warner, here with CPR News. 
A lot of folks out there question whether or not you can even get addicted to cannabis. Why would you say marijuana doesn't have addiction potential? This guy is here to tell you that it can happen, and it does happen. I mean, it's, it, it, it obviously does. On the latest episode of On Something, Cannabis Addiction. Addiction is addiction, and stuff can ruin your life. Subscribe to On Something on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The Mexican drug kingpin known as El Chapo was sentenced this week to life in prison plus 30 years. He's now reportedly at Supermax in Florence, Colorado. It's considered the highest security federal prison, and it houses notorious criminals like Unabomber Ted Kaczynski and Jokar Zarnayev, convicted in the Boston Marathon bombing. Supermax's warden from 2002 to 2005 was Robert Hood. We spoke in February after El Chapo was convicted, and I asked him why Supermax. Well, there's only 122 federal prisons. And when you look at El Chapo's escape history, his violence, his access to funds and people, uh, within the system, it's uh, not even questioned. He will not go to a camp. He will not go to low security or even a penitentiary. He will come to Colorado at the nation's most uh, high-security prison. Most high-security prison. What differentiates it from the others? Give us a sense of the technology it has, uh, the reinforcements it has in place. Sure. Well, it's located on 600 acres in a fairly remote place in Colorado. And uh, it's on a complex with approximately 2,600 other federal inmates. There's four prisons there, actually. The uh, Supermax is just one of four. So when you think about it, the remoteness, the fact that he's uh, would be located within uh, a complex with four total prisons, it has uh, six gun towers at the Supermax, six gun towers next door at the federal penitentiary, an abundance of razor wire, uh, several staff on the outside on mobile patrols uh, 24 hours a day that are heavily armed. And that's just the external part. When you get inside the prison, it's not like what the other federal inmates have. Most of the 4,700 federal inmates that are doing life, they're walking around the compound today. They're mm-hmm. truly going to school, they're going to church, they're going to work, whatever. And they're, they're accepting their time. To come to the Supermax is totally different. How so? Give us a sense of what a day in the life is there. Well, most of the day, 23 hours of the day, El Chapo will be in his cell a 7-by-12-foot cell. So for 84 square feet, he's going to be you know, walking around, period, end of story. But that's uh, inside the cell. It has a cement bed, a cement desk, a cement stool. Uh, he, he would have a black-and-white TV set, very small, uh, confined behind some Lexan glass so he can't break it or destroy it. And so when you think about the life of uh, any person in a 23-hour environment, going out to a caged environment for the one hour, um, it's pretty stark to say the least. So the recreation is in that cage, that small cage, one hour a day. Now, those are all sort of the, that's the hardware. But it occurs to me that El Chapo has proven himself very persuasive. He clearly has developed relationships, I guess, with guards to be able to escape previously. And so you have to think about the kind of psychological barriers here. Um, would guards be specially screened? Would they be rotated out to prevent, I don't know, the kinds of relationships that have allowed El Chapo to escape in the past? 
sure. Um, I call them correctional officers instead of guards, but the yes, correctional officers clearly are, are trained since 1994 when the Supermax opened. And by the way, it replaced Alcatraz throughout the years. Um, the staff are very carefully selected. They practice everything from hostage negotiations to internal, external assault. So it's a, a special team of the um, approximately 38,000 federal uh, Bureau of Prison workers. So it's a, a special group, if you will. Now, having said that, um, throughout the years when we built this, we there's still a concern. You know, even though he's not going to be walking around the compound, he'll be locked in not only, in my opinion, not only the supermax, but I think what will occur, he'll be given what's called a special administrative measure. That's uh, a process, process under the United States law that says that you can put a uh, an inmate under these restrictions for where you house them in the prison, their correspondence, their visits. So it is highly likely that he will not have his wife visit, his children visit, anyone but his lawyer visit if he gets this special administrative measure. He will have that TV set, a black and white TV set I mentioned. However, if the SAMS, we call it, the special administrative measure is applied, uh, it's very likely that all the program would not be live time. He would have the History Channel. He'd have various pl- uh, channels, huh. movies, etc. nothing live. And a newspaper that is normally 30 days old. So basically what you're doing is saying enough is enough. You're going to the Supermax, but, super but more importantly, you'd be placed in a location that he most likely will not even be able to communicate with any other inmate or any other um, or see any other inmate. Right. So the staff are obviously restricted to the area that he would be in. It's not everyone goes and sees him. And we sign in. There's cameras. There's audio. There's an abundance of caution um, for an inmate like this. I see. So any interactions, perhaps with correctional officers, would also be recorded. Other eyes would be on that. Has anyone ever escaped or come anywhere close? Uh, from the federal supermax facility since, as you mentioned, it opened in 94? No, there's been no escape. And I think what, uh, as I said, when you look at the internal provisions, you know, the the brick and mortar part of the uh, facility is one thing, and the remoteness and all the other descriptions I gave. Yeah. It's really the internal procedures that make this, uh, you know, you're watching a person 24 hours a day, and you have an abundance of staff, and even if there is a problem, you have three other institutions right within that complex to respond with their staff. Um, so when you look at the procedures that most prisons can't afford, uh, that's why this is the Alcatraz of the Rockies. That's why this is a place we send the, the worst of the worst in the federal system. The Alcatraz of the Rockies. Robert Hood, was this a job you enjoyed? Well, very much. I, I Actually, I, I couldn't even be talking to you if I was still working there. We kind of uh, shut out the media, if you will. But uh, I enjoyed it so much. The only reason I'm not there is because by law, you must retire at 57 years of age. That's for all federal law enforcement, by the way. So every one of the 38,000 Federal Bureau of Prison staff members, they're considered uh, hazardous duty employees. So, you know, I, I, I respect that. But to be honest with you, I, I'd rather be working in the, the Supermax this morning. You'd still be there if you could. What was gratifying about this work before we go? Well, I do believe in in, uh, man's capacity to change. And so even though all of these 400 inmates, they only have 400 at the Supermax, all have done horrendous acts. 
But my job is to make sure, or was to make sure, that all my staff would go home safe to their families. So once I believe in man's capacity to change, I'm not rewarding him. But again, I, I do believe that inmates are sent to prison as punishment, not for punishment. So it was rewarding in the sense that I was get, able to get closer to these inmates, get a trust level going, and make it a safer place for, hopefully for the society, but also for the staff that work there. Robert, thank you. I've enjoyed talking to you. Thank you. I appreciate the time. Robert Hood is former warden of the federal supermax prison in Florence, Colorado. That's where convicted drug kingpin Joaquin El Chapo Guzman will spend the rest of his days. He was sentenced to life and then some on Wednesday. The company that owns the Gold King Mine in southwestern Colorado has told federal officials it won't help clean up a Superfund site near Silverton after a mine accident in 2015. For some perspective, let's hear from Jonathan Thompson. He's author of River of Lost Souls about the Gold King Mine disaster. He's also a contributing editor to High Country News. Thompson speaks with my colleague Mike Lamb. Well, what is the latest then uh, in in the Gold King mine spill that began in 2015 and continues now all these years later? Back in 2015, the Gold King mine blew out, meaning that 3 million gallons of tainted water came blasting out of the mountainside and ran into the Animas River and turned the River Orange for about 100 miles downstream and caused all kinds of upheaval. That disaster basically triggered a Superfund designation, not only for the Gold King mine, but for another 46 mine sites in the area around Silverton, Colorado. One of those mines that was kind of included in this designation was the Sunnyside Mine, which is the last operating mine in the Silverton area. And since 1992, they've been doing cleanup, basically, the Sunnyside Gold Corporation has. Uh, Recently, the EPA ordered Sunnyside Gold to do some drilling work that was basically intended to investigate what was going on to try to figure out where the water originates um, in order to help them figure out how to clean it up eventually. And the Sunnyside Gold Corp just a few days ago uh, sent a letter to the EPA saying, no, we're not going to do it. And Sunnyside has uh, said that it will refuse to make that investigation in their own mind. And what is their rationale for refusing to do this? Their rationale is that back in 92, after they stopped operating and they started their cleanup, they came to an agreement with the state of Colorado that said that they would do a certain amount of cleanup and they would plug their mine and they would clean up actually totally unrelated mines in order to sort of offset the pollution in the river. In a way, they were like pollution credits that they were getting that then they would be allowed to leave. They've spent well over $20 million on cleanup. And so their rationale is basically, look, we came to this agreement with the state. The EPA signed off on the agreement, and we did everything that we were supposed to do under the agreement. And what is, uh, do you think, is the next step? Well, it's going to be another court battle, I think. So far, the Gold King uh, spill has been the subject of a number of ongoing lawsuits. This is just going to add to that legal quagmire. In the meantime, it's going to simply delay progress on the Superfund cleanup, I believe. And do you foresee that that cleanup will eventually take place after all this gets worked out? Uh, yeah, I think it, it will take place. It's going to take a long time. And and that's not 
totally uh, surprising. Um, super fun designations tend to be very long, drawn-out processes. I don't expect them to wrap it up anytime within the next uh, 10 years for sure, probably not within the next 20. And you mentioned the detrimental effects of these uh, spills and of the, the mine water leaking into the groundwater. What, what are these detrimental effects? What, what, what problems do this, does this cause? Uh, mostly it's to uh, aquatic, aquatic life, so bugs uh, and fish. It's bad for bugs and fish, and we've really seen that pretty dramatically on the Animus River um, that where the Gold King Mine spilled into. The number of fish downstream for maybe 20, 30, even 40 miles downstream, you could see the difference in the number of fish. That There was a decline in the number of species of fish. There was a decline in the density of fish in the water. So it definitely had a harmful effect. Are people threatened by uh, these kinds of spills? Not necessarily. It depends. You know, um, with the Gold King mine spill, people, people were certainly affected um, because they had to close the river and they had to shut off irrigation ditches and that sort of thing. And it was also emotionally and psychologically traumatic, really, to see the river turn that color for people downstream. But um, as far as health effects go, the, uh, there wasn't enough... Um, say lead, which is probably one of the more harmful materials, or mercury is another one that can occur in these things. That If it's there's enough of it, it can be super harmful to people. But in this case, uh, that's not really a problem because um, uh, there's just not, not enough of it. Okay, thanks very much. Thanks so much. CPR's Mike Lamp speaking with Jonathan Thompson, author of River of Lost Souls, about the Gold King mine disaster. An African-American film festival opens tonight in Denver. It's called The Color of Conversation, and organizers say it's long overdue. Denver residents Stephanie and Floyd Rance put it together, and they spoke with my colleague Avery Lill. Stephanie and Floyd, welcome to the program. Hey. Thank you for having us. Before we talk about the festival, I wonder if you can first give me a sense of what the local African-American film scene is here in Denver and in Colorado. Uh, Well, I think we're still discovering it um, at this time, but we've come to find out that there are a lot of creators of of African-American descent here. And this is the first year Color of Conversation is happening here, but it's kind of a local offshoot of something you've been involved in for almost two decades, the Martha's Vineyard African-American Film Festival. Stephanie, tell me a little about how that transition has been from there to Denver. You know, we the film festival on Martha's Vineyard is uh, like our third child, and we're we're so happy and honored that it's 17 years old, and we did get our Academy Award accreditation to do that. So we're it's it's been fantastic. When we moved here to Colorado three years ago, Floyd had the idea of you know since we're here. Let's do a film festival here. And that's how it started. We've done Color of Conversations in the past. We did one in New- we've done it in New York at Macy's on 34th Street. We've done one in Brooklyn. We've done it in D.C. And it's been fantastic. And we figured, you know, since we're here, let's do it as a film festival. Let's really um, showcase the best of multicultural films for this Denver audience. We felt that um, from a multicultural perspective, it was lacking a little bit. And since this is what we do and we do it well, we said, let's just do it here. And we're so excited and, and happy with it. Denver's been a great transition. And you said it's got an Academy Award accreditation. Tell me a little bit more about 
about what yeah, that is. Yeah, so last year, our festival on Martha's Vineyard uh, was accredited by the Academy, which means that we could submit short films for uh, consideration for the Oscars. And I understand this is one of very few multicultural film festivals to receive that accreditation. Absolutely. I think we're one of three. Floyd, what are your expectations for the festival this weekend? Um, I don't have lofty expectations, but I think it's going to be really good. I mean, we, as my wife mentioned, we've been doing this for a long time, so we've seen just about everything. But the response so far has been pretty positive. So uh, we did a screening earlier this year in May at Denver University, and the turnout was amazing. So um, I'm expecting good things for this one as well. The Denver Spotlight Series is a celebration of local filmmakers, and that'll be on Friday night. And one of the films featured is Everything I Whispered to Dorothy, which is called A Meditation on Black Love. So let's listen to a clip. Why do I love you? I love you because you so country, and you remind me of, like, red clay roads and sweat in summertime and drinking out of water hose. You remind me of home, like all the best parts of summers in my grandmother's house. I think feeling expansive in general is part of how I know I'm in love. When I'm around somebody and being near them makes me feel more free, more open, more... Um, Like I have more permission to be my fullest self. I'm wondering what the two of you would say about what black love is. And Floyd, I'm told that this is where I should say that you should not be weird. (laughs) (laughs) Too late. Oh, I can't elaborate on that. I've only been married for like, how long? Like 20 something years. (laughs) Love is love. That's good. That's a good answer. Love is love. Mm. Mm-hmm. There's no there's no distinction between, you know, tall people love, short people love, black love, white love, yellow love. There's no it's all love. He sounds like a poet. Black love. Black no, that that love. was yeah, the, the woman on the, on yeah. the, the thing. <laughs> She's the poet. Yes. It's a great film. The director's name is Fitzgerald and it's a, an experimental piece. It's fantastic. I'm excited to have the, the everyone see this film. We've got a lot of great filmmakers for Denver. We're really happy about this. And another film being screened is called Blackface, the story of nobody. And in it, a black man performing in blackface in 1918 decides to go rogue. The other day, I was sitting on a subway train eating me a sandwich. And right across from me was an ivory-skinned young lady and her daddy. I was taking me a nap while I was eating my sandwich. Cause it was a long sandwich. But the daddy said I wasn't looking at his daughter. I said, uh-huh. I can't help it cause I sleep with my eyes open. The police didn't know what to do. First, he looked at me. Then he looked at the daddy. And then the daddy looked at me. I say, I say, I say, her father loved me, often invited me, still questioned me the story of my life from year to year, the battles, sieges, fortunes that I have passed. This to hear what does Demona seriously incline, and whichever she could with haste dispatch, she'd come again. 
and with a greedy ear devour up my discourse. I did consent, and often did beguile her of her tears when I did speak of some distressful stroke that my youth suffered. So he segued from his traditional minstrel routine into Shakespeare's Othello, and the film was done by an artist named Cajardo. Floyd, you're a filmmaker yourself, and I'm wondering what it's like, what's your first reaction on coming upon a powerful piece like this? It was moving. It was very moving. It was a very, very strong piece. Uh, he's a, a very intense uh, young man. I got the pleasure of meeting him uh, not too long ago, um, and he's committed to making that a, a feature-length film. But it's a very powerful, powerful piece, very, very strong and somewhat, somewhat hurtful piece as well. You know, it hurts to to hear that character. Uh, he's going through a tough time as it is. Um, and then you go even deeper and you know that this is a man who's actually on stage portraying a character. So there's layers to it. And it's only it's a short film. I think it's maybe 10 minutes. And just in 10 minutes, you know, your, your soul is stirred. So. And so there's a lot to unpack in Oh, there. absolutely. Absolutely. And Stephanie, what about you? What's the rush of knowing that you've hit on something? It's humbling. It's it's gratifying. You know, I was telling someone earlier today that since Floyd and I have been here, the response to the idea of doing this, the creation of it has been overwhelming. People are just cheering us on and offering support, offering help. It, it lets us know that it's needed and the time is now to do it. Along with showing films, there will also be a development component for filmmakers as well. Floyd, how will that work? Oh, it's, it's just going to be like a workshop. Uh, Tim Reed has been nice enough to uh, offer his time to sit and chat with filmmakers about what they're doing and, and, and talk about his share his journey and uh, impart some wisdom on them on how they can uh, become as successful as he is. That's Tim Reed, who starred in the TV show Frank's Place, and I think of him as the father and sister's sister. And you've organized film festivals for 17 years, and I can't imagine the volume of submissions you received over that time. Stephanie, how do you decide which films make the cut? You know, that's that's a tough one. I tend to lead more with heart, and Floyd is really technical and very strong in the sense that it has to have a beginning, middle, and end. It has to tell a story. It, you know, acting, cinematography, production has to be on point, even if it is a first-time filmmaker. I'm the one that's like, oh, I feel bad. Let's accept the film because we have a team that watches with us. But Floyd and I um, get final approval on all films that come in. But it's it's tough. It's easy when the film is amazing. It's like, oh, it's that's accepted. It's easy when the film is bad. That's not accepted. It's hard when they're sort of like, it's not bad, it's not good, it's just sort of, you know, in the middle. It's 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 okay, it's great. Those are the tough ones that we, you know, we get into our, our arguments about. Should we take it in? Shouldn't we do it? But yeah, it, it's, it's tough. It really is tough. Floyd, how does the festival's location in Denver influence the films that you're showing? This year, you know, we're really... It's like a sampler size. You know what I mean? We're really just trying to, to see what people gravitate to. As I mentioned earlier, we did a screening uh, back in May, and it was very well attended. So that lets you know that there is somewhat of a need or a thirst for this type of um, um, entertainment uh, and culture. So, um, yeah, it's a sampler size this year, and then we'll collect the data and uh, regroup and decide what we're going to do next year. Or maybe later in the fall, you know, you just you just don't know. And Stephanie, I understand that when all this started, you didn't really have experience putting film festivals together. Do you look back <laughs> and wonder how you've gotten to where you are now? That's a really good question. You know, I was telling 
I think I was telling Floyd this yeah, a while back that when you look back on your life and everything that's taken place, all the pieces add up to where you are now. So everything that's happened to you leads you to your present. So whatever I've been through, you know, leaving New York City, moving to Charlotte, coming here, there was a reason for it. And the film festival the film festival started as a an idea to keep me relevant in the entertainment industry because I had kids and I'm the type of person I give 100% to everything. So I couldn't do 100% to marriage, kids and a job. So I said, I choose, of course, my marriage and my family, but I wanted to stay relevant in the field. So we decided to do this film festival. And for me, the film festival was supposed to help me get this great opportunity because it shows my marketing and sponsorship and PR and all those great skills, not even realizing that the film festival was going to be the job. You know what I mean? I never imagined 17 years later we would still be doing this on that island and it would be so well received and so, like, we're, you know, studios are calling us all the time about, can we show your film? We're bringing, like, it's just crazy. This has turned into my career and I'm very happy about it. And I want to do the same here for Denver. And the name of the festival is The Color of Conversation. I wonder if you can tell me a little bit more about the conversations you want to be happening at the film festival and afterward. Well, I would say um, positive conversations. I mean, it's usually... The Color of Conversation is is essentially a, a, a combination of two things, right? So it's a... I watched this thing called Sunday Conversation. It's on ESPN. And then I took that, just added it with colors. We want to have conversations. Uh, we're going to have these talkbacks with Tim Reed, with uh, Julius Tenen. So that is the conversation. And they'll be enlightening and enriching, and, and people will leave very happy and, and be looking for the next one. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. My colleague Avery Lill speaking with Stephanie and Floyd Rance. They've organized the Color of Conversation Film Festival. It begins tonight at the Newman Center in Denver. Thanks for spending time with us. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters.